a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, deconstructing WandaVision. I'm Peter Melnick and John Sherburn, well, you'll hear him at the end of this episode, but he's also on uh, Simon and Guam again or something. I don't know. He, he ran off there. Before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest co-host, want to tell you all at home how you can get hold of us on them, our social medias, and all those listening platforms and how you can support us. You go on Facebook at facebook.com slash themarvelists, Twitter and Instagram at themarvelists. Individually, I'm on all social media platforms as at Peter Melnick. Eddie is Eddie9193 on Instagram. And be sure to listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Podbean, etc., you can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash themarvelists. Get our undying gratitude, love, and affection. Well, maybe not the last part. But you also get our fantastic Voyage podcast where we cover all 102 issues plus annuals plus whatever the hell is going on of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic Fantastic Four run. And also be sure to check out our new shop on belowthecollar.com slash the marvelous featuring a t-shirt design where my favorite five-star review came about and it was a put down it was a insult but somehow they still realized well these guys like five-star reviews so i'm still going to do that anyway anyway enough of that palaver let's get this show on the road joining us over on the best coast we are joined with one of the gentlemen involved with the mcu fan show Mr. Sean Gerber. Sean, good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here and always thrilled to talk about WandaVision. And boy, what a show this week was. Uh, first off, a lot of people were talking about the tone of last week's episode being just a straight up 80s show. I thought mm -hmm. last week was a hodge, like not a hodgepodge, but like a mashup of 80s and 90s, whereas this week's episode was... Not at all 90s, because you could tell partially with that marquee at the movie theater featuring 2000, I think, 3's The Incredibles or 2004's The Incredibles. Mm -hmm. But this episode was a love letter to one of my all-time favorite shows from the year 2000. In the year but the show Malcolm in the Middle. And right off the bat, I was enthralled with how this episode came about. Yourself? I loved it, and I, I love what they did for last week's episode with the 80s, and yes, a little bit of 90s, where you know they had the, the very special episode, the touching, earnest, heartfelt episode where they had to talk about something serious for a second, and I think that was tonally the right move because it played off of all, of all that had been revealed and the stakes that had been revealed to try and take things a little more seriously, but now that we've done that, we can go back and we can have a little bit of fun or a lot more fun because we're focusing on the kids a bit more. So that's just inherently going to be more fun. And Malcolm in the Middle was the right choice. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a cheat because I don't think they totally covered the 90s last week. I wouldn't give them full credit for having covered the 90s on the show. But also the 90s 
weren't as big on family sitcoms except for ones that started in the 80s like Full House or Family Matters. It was more That's true. workplace things, also friends, and this is still a family show. So I think Malcolm in the Middle was a good choice. And I still think Malcolm in the Middle, while, yes, it premiered in January of 2000, it still had the feel a little bit. Of, it was kind of a hybrid, perfectly timed, of course, because it's right there at the beginning of 2000. It was a, a little bit of a throwback, an extension of the 90s, while also bridging the gap to the 2000s. And it makes sense. I mean, the show was conceived in the 90s. They initially started filming it in the 90s. So it's a cheat with dates a little bit, but I'll forgive it because it's totally the right choice for this episode and where we're at in the story. Also, one thing that I've always noticed is the beginning of a new decade. You still have the lingering elements of what made the previous decade what it was. Yes. And I've been listening to a lot of uh, The Ringers, 60 songs that explain the 90s over on Spotify and... Uh, Rob Harvella talks about how, you know, on the most one of the most recent episodes, they're covering CNC Music Factory, and they're talking about how that song still has, while it's a 1990 song, it has so many elements of what makes an 80s song an 80s song. And you look back at like the beginning of the decade music wise and even TV show wise, movie wise, there are so many elements of what makes the, you know, early aughts what it was like of the late 90s like you have the new metal era which uh, i have the corn shirts to prove it and you know there's that element of that stuff that it's still very much late 90s you have like you know the people running around with the bleach blonde hair you have like a spider-man movie in 2002 that while it's 2002 and it was filmed in 2001 that is absolutely 110 percent a 90s movie in terms of feel and in terms of aesthetic you know Absolutely. I think there is that you know, phasing out period of one era into the new one and you end up having a bit of crossover. But yeah, still a lot of lingering effects of the previous one. And that's why, like for me to remember that Malcolm Middle was 2000, it's not like I knew about it as a 2000 show. It was when I looked it up, I was like, when was that? Because I remember it in my head as if it was the 90s anyway, because it still kind of felt like that. Um, but then, yeah, it doesn't premiere until 2000. But I think... The most important thing for me is that it just it's the right move for this one. And I, I think it's really cool to have like the kids breaking the fourth wall and, and stuff like that. And, and Billy's kind of the one who starts it. So it, it plays into kind of the meta relationship that Wanda has with Westview and this TV show and everything is the one kind of creating it and show running it. But it all just totally it, it fit for me. And I can't really think of like if you go with the definitive sitcoms of the 90s as inspiration, like I don't really see how Seinfeld or Friends really translate to this even though they would be the most obvious choices as the sitcoms of that decade. Um, you could have gone a little Saved by the Bell, but the kids aren't really old enough for Saved by yeah. the Bell. I think the closest 1990s sitcom they could have gone with, you know, in terms of a family element, is uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, but in a way, mm. eh, you know, like... There aren't many shows like you have uh, the Cosby show, but let's be honest, we're not touching that show whatsoever. But, you know, there's there. I was I was shocked a little bit that they still have not in the past uh, few episodes. The closest thing to it would be the animation in regards to the 1960s with Bewitched. But I felt like a 1990s episode would have been primed to reference things such as The Simpsons, because the 1990s were the absolute peak era of 
television animation in prime time. You have shows like The Simpsons, of course, The Critic, right. King of the Hill, Fish Police. This is the first podcast probably in 10 years that's referenced Fish Police, but here we are. <laughs> and there's just so much stuff. And I'm kind of shocked, but on the flip side, we kind of got that with the Yo Magic commercial, which with it being claymation, you know, again, around this same time, we have shows such as the PJ starring uh, Eddie Murphy. We have mm-hmm. the adventures of Gary and Mike on UPN, which again, I think this is also the first show in 15 years that's referenced that show, but so much stuff in that getting referenced. And I feel like that commercial might've encapsulated that element of animation, which by the way, that is the most unnerving thing I've seen in this series so far. And that's up oh, there dark. with spoilers for later. Yeah. Spoilers for later. Quicksilver becoming a human pincushion again. Mm-hmm. But good Lord, that was the creepiest thing I've ever seen that commercial. Yes, it, it was. Uh, one quick thing about The Simpsons is I do feel like it was acknowledged in some way because the way they title this episode, All New Halloween Spooktacular, and they treat the Halloween episode as a main event. And it has been, right. it's a time-honored tradition of sitcoms that you have the Halloween episode. But I think the sitcom that's done a better job of that and is better known for that more than any other is The Simpsons with the Treehouse of Horror series being three decades strong. It's not an overt thing of we're doing The Simpsons, but to treat Halloween as a main event, you could say that's not directly a reference to The Simpsons, but I'm sure that had to be in their minds as they're making this because Nobody's made a bigger deal and and nobody's made Halloween more of a main event for their series every single year than that one. Yeah. And also with the topic of Halloween, first off, we want to give a shout out to one half of this program, Eddie Wilson, the king of Halloween with the house that haunts. And there is just something about, you know, the time of of, the time of Halloween. There's just something Mm -hmm. about how this is. I love how ultra meta it is in regards to the costumes of the characters, how we see Wanda come out as a quote unquote Sokovian fortune teller. I loved that. I love that. That was the uh, way to acknowledge why does, uh, why does Wanda look like a cat with a piece of bread, you know, just like getting jammed on its face, you know, the the loaf cats, if you ever look those up, Mm -hmm. that's what Wanda looks like when she has that costume. But there's something about that era of these characters getting acknowledged in the Halloween episode. And I also want to bring up something that I really enjoy the again, I feel like it's straight up Malcolm in the middle again with the relationship between Wanda and Vision in the very beginning where they're talking to each other and like, oh, I know how much you love Mexican wrestlers. And it is very much the Cran man, Brian Cranston and his wife on the show, their mm-hmm. relationship And I loved seeing that kind of wacky relationship between a husband and wife acknowledged in this show. Yeah, I like that. It worked very well. I mean, Paul Bettany was definitely channeling Brian Cranston as Hal. I mean, even in the opening theme was just terrific when he's phasing through the couch to try and swat the kids with the newspaper. But I think it was a really great job. But I think that's working on multiple levels because you have the silly sitcom thing, but Vision's joking only to back off from what he really means. Like you only gave, I'm wearing this costume because it's the only thing that was in my closet. You made it that way. And there's very much this passive aggressive thing and it totally fits with where Wanda and Vision ended the last episode is they had this huge fight and they never really resolved it. 
So with no resolution to the fight, but nobody wants to keep fighting, especially now that the kids are right here in the living room, it's that other thing that couples do, which is let's communicate with each other passive aggressively uh, and let's just, you know, take our little shots. And Vision is definitely taking his shots. Um, and, uh, you know, Wanda, for the most part, is knowing that she can't really she can't really give in to this argument because it's only going to prove Vision's point. But the the tension between them as they're being silly, I thought, added to it. Now, I have to ask, have you seen the upcoming teaser clip for episode seven of WandaVision? I don't think I had. Was that released today or yesterday? Uh, I don't yesterday. Know if I've seen it. Okay. I don't know if I've seen it. But you can tell me See, what's I in w- it because I'll watch it after this anyway. Well, basically, the show that they're going to be acknowledge- like doing an homage to is a mashup of Modern Family, of course. Right. And everyone's favorite script in Pennsylvania show, The Office, you know, with the mockumentary style of interview. And I'm kind of guessing, based on everything, the tension between the two characters Mm -hmm. and Vision running off, trying to leave. And by the way, that was a absolute heartbreaking scene, seeing him get torn apart into pieces. The whole element of that, I have a feeling the next episode is going to be a quote-unquote divorce episode. Mommy and daddy are separating and everything is going to hell. And we're seeing these, you know, scenes with Wanda talking to the camera, doing the mockumentary style kind of thing. I have a feeling it's going to be that, where they're both on their own talking about their problems with this to the documentary team. I could see that. I mean, certainly Vision seems to be the one that Wanda's talking about, because I have seen a clip from a different preview of you know, Wanda talking to camera, talking about how it must be a case of the Monday. You know, what was that? It must be a case yes, of the Mondays, uh, which is an office-based joke, not the office, but I'll allow it. Um, I, I really like that bit, but I'm also wondering, uh, yeah, that could be the relationship breaking down. But I'm also wondering if Vision is going to rally back to Wanda's side in this, because when he pleads for help outside of Westview, all he's greeted with are guns in his face and nobody doing anything to help him. And so... And remember, Vision doesn't have memories of any other sort of outside world, doesn't even remember that he was an Avenger, as they talk about in this episode. So I think that we get that other rallying point of, you know, Wanda saying this is our home and Vision saying let's fight for it. He seems to be he might be back on Team Wanda, actually, uh, after this, because if you have no idea what's outside of Westview and the only thing you see are people pointing guns at you and, and not doing anything to help you might start to agree with Wanda that what's outside isn't worth it. There's, again, so much, especially in the opening f- you know, few minutes of this episode, that are, you can dissect oh so much. And for me, again, you, know, you brought it up earlier, with Billy talking to the camera and mm-hmm. doing that Malcolm in the Middle kind of breaking the uh, fourth wall. One of the things that I notice, and I I don't know if anyone's caught this, but when they're sitting on the couch playing PlayStation 2, because I could tell based on that controller, that was PlayStation 2, baby. uh, Um, I'm seeing them sitting there, and Billy's talking to the camera. And if you look on the right-hand side of the screen, Pietro's looking, too, like, why are you talking to them? mm. And I noticed that little thing of he's noticing the uh, fourth wall breaking at that moment. He's the only one that acknowledges it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Pietro later on in the episode, you know, it makes it abundantly clear. Like, he's aware that he's playing a role in this, but he's also, 
very much watching these kids. I mean, there is that element of him trying to influence the kids, and he has a lot of luck with that in, with Tommy in this episode, not so much with Billy. And I like that the this section of the show establishes that as well. I mean, the kids later on in the scene where Tommy is... Tommy thinks that even that Pietro, he even snores cool, as he says. And meanwhile, Billy is, he doesn't want to admit it, but he's afraid of Pietro. And I think that really points to Tommy having more of that Pietro personality anyway, but Billy being more empathetic and having maybe more sensitive and more intuitive than, than Tommy and more in line with his mother, Wanda, where Wanda and Billy are both suspicious of Pietro and, and not really sure that this guy is who he says he is. And he probably isn't. And on the topic of we're not sure who they say they are. One of the things we, I want to rewind back over to the commercial, the uh, Yo Magic, because yes. I just remembered this. Um, friend of the show, Doug McCausland, is currently going on TikTok talking about this. And he brought up the point that Thanos is the shark. With the whole concept of I was struggling for food, I wanted food, I was mm. malnourished and all that. And the rumor also as well on other sites is they're doing the Infinity Stones through these commercials. Do you agree with that? Personally, I don't. I do not. I'm not into the Infinity Stone theory. I think that where we've been previously is we've just been tracking Wanda's tragedies and traumas throughout her life with... The Stark missile with the toaster, Strucker with the watch, just Hydra more in a broader sense with Hydra Soak and Lagos last week when you make a mess you didn't mean to. I think we've kind of graduated from that. I mean, I wondered if we would have a fast food commercial with a Grimace type character just laughing at that <laughs> of like, you know, having that, that representing Thanos. I don't really see the shark representing Thanos. I understand the whole idea of like hunger, but I don't know that Thanos ever went hungry. He saw the problem ahead of time and wanted to solve it, and it didn't happen, and then the bad stuff happened. I don't know that Thanos himself ever really went hungry. He doesn't look like he's ever missed a meal in however many centuries he's been alive. <laughs> but when I look at that commercial, the way it reads to me is it's more of the past merging with the present, and I think it represents the doubts that Wanda has to some extent with Vision, but... To an even greater extent, I think, with Pietro, because right now in this episode, she is suspicious of this idea that her brother could be back and be alive and it really be him. And I think the reason why she's suspicious is she knows, as she explained to Tommy and Billy last week, that she can't bring back the dead. And so I think the tagline is what gives it away in this ad, if my interpretation is correct. Yo magic, meaning your magic, your magic Wanda. It's a snack for survivors. This kid can't open it because he's already dead, meaning magic doesn't work on the dead. It's a snack for survivors because it only works on the living, meaning Wanda's magic doesn't work on the dead. She can't bring back Pietro. Therefore, this can't be him. Uh, and just like she can't bring back Vision all by herself, and maybe Sword had something to do with that. But I think it's more of her the relationship of her magic with the dead and how there isn't one compared to how it is for the living. So yeah, this poor kid can't snack on the yogurt because he's already he already starved to death. He just didn't know it. That's a perfect theory. I really, really like that interpretation. And, oh my, like, again, just going back into overall, again, that scene of the, decom the, the decomposing of the child. 
Mm-hmm. I never thought we would see something like that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Just just throwing that out there. Did not expect that whatsoever. Not at all. But I, I have said that, you know, because there was that question of a lot of the stuff that Marvel has coming up, like Moon Knight and other things of, are they going to be allowed to go dark enough with some of these stories that need to on Disney Plus? And my answer has always been yes, because... I think there's some pretty dark stuff in the MCU in general. There's been more than it's had credit for. But I also look at some of the stuff in The Mandalorian has gotten pretty dark in some places. And it shows that Disney's willing to go there. They don't want to live there all the time, but they will go there when the story calls for it. And I feel like with the Marvel Universe, there's a lot of people that will go on their complaints because they feel, you know, making something quote unquote R-rated will make it better. Hi, Zach. How are you? But in regards to that, (laughs) in regards to that, I feel like when I love the use of humor for the Marvel Universe Mm -hmm. and the prevalence of that, because when something dark, when something serious happens, it has that much more importance. You can't like. I love the line in The Crow, and I really can't believe I'm going with this. This is a 2007 goth kid, Peter, coming back from the dead. But it can't rain all the time. Right. So when there are these moments, these senses of these moments of brevity all the time, and then something happens, that's important because you're like, oh, wait, what's going on? Because it draws your attention to it. It makes you care about that moment. And again, Grimdark can only go so far. And this is why you mentioned Mooney. I'm very curious to see the direction they are going to go with that. Because do you go with the, you know, the uh, Bill Sienkiewicz era? Do you go with the Ward Ellis era? Do you go with the, you know, 2006 era? I don't remember the artist's name offhand and writer. But do you go with those? This is a character who ripped a guy's face off right that that's pretty damn intense so i'm definitely excited to see where they could go in terms of tone with that and in regards to tone we're also seeing the change of things throughout i don't know where i'm going with this but yeah (laughs) let's uh that's it's all verbal diarrhea from time to time you get used to it yeah. But well, uh, no, I like what you said, though, about how you can't be grimdark all the time. It's one of the things I've long said about the MCU tonally is I don't I've never quite understood the interpretation of this or the assessment of this, rather, that the MCU is undercutting the humor or with they're undercutting their the dramatic weight and the emotional weight and significance of what happens in their stories because of the levity, the quips and all of that. And to me, that's actually read more true to life than anything tonally, because life is that. Every funeral I've ever been to, somebody cracks a joke. Some do it better than others. But every day that seems like the worst usually ends up having some degree of humor to it because it's actually what human beings need. It's an emotional survival mechanism. If all we did was felt the full weight of every tragedy in life, whether it's one we experience or one that we know others are experiencing, and all we did was ever focus on that, none of us would ever get out of bed ever. And so like, yeah. it's only because of that balance in life that we carry forward and we experience fiction the same way. And, and it's a great point you made that it's that variance of the emotional response to things and the tone of things that makes them all stand out and gives them a greater impact. So 
if you're just sad all the time, then it's it almost becomes this neutral feeling because it's the status quo of this is how you feel as opposed to you when you have opportunities to laugh and have fun and just be thrilled and entertained. When something comes along that is dark and sad and frightening, it really shocks the system the way that it should. I really just want to respond back with the line from Blazing Saddles of just ditto. Ditto. Because I feel like you just perfectly <laughs> encapsulated everything I said in such a wonderfully articulate way. And it is true. It is absolutely true. And I feel that is the biggest strength of the Marvel Universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. And seeing these moments, these, you know, you have the scene of Captain America getting his dance with Agent Carter, which I will be the first to admit, I'm sitting there in the press screening for that and I'm trying to hold back my tears at that moment. No, you gotta be professional right now, but my boy got his dance. My boy got his dance. And there's just, you have the humor, you have this, you have that, but then you have a moment like that that just comes in and impacts you in a way. And it's wonderful storytelling. And that, again, is what we're getting with this show. Every week, I'm having conversations with friends in the comic community all over and they're just like they're really doing this so damn well they're making me care about characters by the way who let's be honest we really didn't care very much for in all of their cinematic appearances but now when we see wanda show up on the big screen in multiverse of madness holy crap that's gonna be great because we're we're so now much more invested in this character than we ever were before and that's gonna make her reaction on the big screen means something. Totally agree. And I think that's one of the things the MCU has done so well over the years is just it's developed relationships between the audience and the characters. And some of that is the way they treat characters like we're on a first name basis with them. Usually when people talk about the MCU, you say Steve and Tony as much as if not more and often more than you say Iron Man or Captain America. And I, I think, you know, that's we're on this, this first name basis with these characters. We like these characters. We care about these characters. And Wanda and Vision, I mean, I, I already cared about them based on what we had. But this show, without question, is strengthening our relationship with these characters. I don't know if Vision lives on beyond this series. That's still a question mark. But we know Wanda will. And you're totally right in that we've been given so much more of an opportunity to get to know her and invest in her and care about her that it's just going to heighten the enjoyment and the experience of everything else we see her in going forward, including the last three episodes of this show and then Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and, and likely well beyond that. And that's why, you know, I've, I've said it repeatedly on the show, but that's why, like, the Netflix characters have such a strong staying power with the audience because you built up this relationship with mm. Charlie Cox's Daredevil, with Kristen Ritter's Jessica Jones, with Mike Coulter's uh, Luke Cage, an actor who played Thundering Dumbass, Iron Fist, all of these characters. Right. You know, we built a relationship with them. And I would say also for myself, and I've said it on the show before, but again, the Stan Lee theory of anyone's something can be there first. I'll right. bring it up again. But Yuri Lowenthal's portrayal of Spider-Man in PS4 Spider-Man is my all-time favorite portrayal of the character because we've built such a relationship with him over the course of a 24-plus-hour-long game. And there's, you know, I love Tom Holland's Spider-Man, but more so I love Yuri because 
we grew with the character. We're learning all of his little tics, his neuroses, in regards to what makes him him, both on a Peter Parker level and a Spider-Man level. And what, you know, you mentioned as well about the first name basis with this. Yeah, you can say Peter, and somebody will go, are you talking about Spider-Man or are you talking about Star-Lord? Which, by the way, 15 years ago... Somebody would have looked at you crazy if you said the name Star Lord, even though he was around for twenty plus years earlier. But mm. no one, you know, honestly, no one cared. But now people do. People are invested in characters such as that. And one of the biggest disappointments in the past, you know, few, you know, past couple decades, is the decline of one version or one group of characters. And I'm talking about Marvel's first family, the Fantastic Four. You have so many portrayals of them on the big screen that. You say the name Reed, people aren't going to be responding back with Richards. They're going to be talking about, you mean Dwayne Reed, the pharmacy? So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but with, you know, Reed, people are speculating. There's rumor and innuendo on the Internet right now. Sure. Reed Richards is might be the specialist that Monica is talking to. We don't know. But for yourself, do you feel that this might be the case? It could be, and it's certainly the thing as a Fantastic Four fan myself that feels like the most exciting possibility, and I think that's also where some of our external knowledge certainly informs our theories. Like, they just officially announced the Fantastic Four movie. I mean, they announced Kevin Feige back at Comic-Con 2019, acknowledged the Fantastic Four were on the way, but they didn't announce a specific movie with a director attached until December when they announced John Watts was directing. So Reed Richards is definitely there, and If it's Reed Richards, tip of the cap to Marvel for holding one of the greatest secrets they've ever held uh, to not let that out, that a character that huge and that massive of a debut is part of this Disney Plus series, especially with as not only having to hold on to it to when this series was originally going to come out, but like well past that um, and through production delays and all of that. So uh, tip of the cap to him if that's what it is. But I also think that there's a very real possibility that this is Adam Brashear, Blue, Mar- uh, Blue Marvel, who could be popping up next week. And that would be an easier secret to keep because that's a much more obscure character that people haven't been digging on the internet for to try and find some sign that this character is on the way. So I have been hearing a lot of Blue Marvel talk, especially a friend of the show, yeah. Jeremy Bagley, texted me. He's like, Blue Marvel might be showing up. I think that's who it's going to be. I'm like, I- funniest thing is I'm a diehard, died-in-the-wool Marvel fan. I have no idea who the hell Blue Marvel is. And, you know, if I keep hearing this stuff, I'm going to probably track down some, you know, appearances and, you know, get into the character. But, like, damn, I'm very curious what this is going to lead to. But Blue Mm -hmm. Marvel, why not? Well, I mean, with more recently in the comic books, leading a a team like the Ultimates, which was kind of the Space Avengers in Marvel, and... Certainly looks like, you know, Monica has already been to some extent a space adventure, uh, Avenger. She's been to space at least. And so you could see that being a team up that leads to bigger, more cosmic things for them. And I also, it is just that other part of it though. Like it, I feel like that's an easier secret for them to have kept that because to that point, a lot of people don't know who this guy is and aren't necessarily looking for him. So he's on my list of possibilities, but that doesn't mean you eliminate Reed Richards. If Reed Richards is there next week, that would, of course, be amazing, and and I would absolutely love it. But I'd still be very excited about Blue Marvel, because we already know, one way or another, we're getting Reed Richards and the rest of the Fantastic Four relatively soon. 
Now, on the topic of Reed Richards, of course, everyone and their mother on the Internet is going on about who they would like to see, and it's continually John Krasinski. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm fine if they bring in Krasinski in the role. However, John Krasinski as Reed Richards has become the new Nathan Fillion as everything and Idris yeah. Elba as everything in terms of fan John Hamm as everything. Oh, God. Well, on our most recent episode that is going to be coming up, I bring up the point of why don't they just make John Hamm the Punisher? And no one's ever said that. And I'm like, that kind of works. You can yeah. get away with doing that. Right. But I digress. In regards to that, my personal choice, and I saw it today on Twitter, and I want it more than anything now, is Glenn Howerton as Reed Richards. Because... Dennis Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the implications of bringing him in to the Marvel Universe would, would be phenomenal. And I feel if they do this, you know, like my joke uh, casting choice then would be Danny DeVito as The Thing, Charlie Day as uh, <laughs> as Johnny Storm, and Caitlin yeah. Olsen as The Invisible Bird. And we could have the, the gang... Uh, gets cosmic radiation and turns into human abominations for profit. So I love the idea, though, of Howerton possibly as Reed Richards. Yourself, if it wasn't Krasinski, who would you pick? Well, I would, like you, prefer that it not be John Krasinski. I feel like the main reason people suggest John Krasinski is because he's married to Emily Blunt, and what they really want is for Emily Blunt to be Sue Storm, and because they're married in real life, they might as well play a fictional married couple. Um, most fictional couples are not actually married to each other, so th I don't need that. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, Krasinski is not a top choice for me. I would accept it and trust Marvel's history with casting if that was the route they went. But the actors that I like, Glenn Howerton is interesting because he was a near miss for Star Lord. But yeah, um, outside of that, uh, my top choices. I really like Yahya Abdul Mateen II, who's probably best known for being Black Manta in Aquaman or being Doctor Manhattan in Watchmen. Something about his portrayal of Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen just really kind of it just kind of dawned on me that this guy would do a great job playing Reed Richards, being able to exist in like the warm family dad existence while also just being constantly plagued by theories of the multiverse and feeling the need that he has to save everyone. If it's and if he doesn't save everyone, then he's if anything ever goes wrong in the multiverse and it all collapses, it's going to be all his fault. Uh, I, I think Yahya Abdul Mateen II could pull that off. Another less conventional choice, not quite as well known. I really like William Jackson Harper, who played Chidi Anagonye in The Good Place. Something about right. him just always read as Reed Richards to me. And then the other choice I like is Bill Hader, who I, I think Ooh. a lot of people know him for com a lot of people know him for his comedy, of course. But when you look at what he did dramatically, well, everybody lands on Barry from HBO, and with good reason. It's an unbelievable show, and he is outstanding in it. But even in the Skeleton Twins with Kristen Wiig, I mean, Bill Hader can carry all the dramatic weight that you have with Reed Richards, but certainly the levity of the MCU would not be a problem for him. Uh, so if anything, you would have to make him not as funny as he actually is in order to play Reed Richards effectively. But any of those choices, I would be absolutely thrilled by. I mean, as long as, you know, they're not talking about New York's hottest club being, you know, we're going to be <laughs> fine with Bill Hader. <laughs> so exactly. I love I love that casting choice. So like that is something that just honestly blew my mind. Like that is a perfect one as well. And like I've I've gone on in the past ever since I, I think it was Daniel Kibblesmith that tweeted it. 
but Denzel Washington would make a killer Reed Richards. There's just something about him and how stoic he can be that he yep. could work as the leader of Marvel's first family. And, you know, throw the salt and pepper on the side of his hair, on his temples. Why not? It could work perfectly for him. I love him. I just wonder if he's aged out of the role. I mean, I know he doesn't look as old yeah. as he is, of course, but he would be a lot older. And so I, I don't know. I mean, and I, and I don't want to put an age restriction on it. Denzel Washington's Reed Richards. I'm on board. But then you think about the dynamic of because I also want Johnny Storm to be really young. So I think of actors who, you know, don't although Bill Hader kind of messes that up, too, because Bill Hader's deep into his 40s. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a tough call. Um, John David Washington, though, his son would not be a bad choice for Reed Richards. So, um, you know, not necessarily as tall, but you don't need a tall guy to play Reed Richards because he stretches. So I know we just normally think of him as tall and lanky, but. Uh, I don't necessarily need the actor uh, to do that. Speaking of which, another guy I've always liked for the role is Adam Scott, who is Ben Wyatt on Parks and Recreation and obviously done a lot of other stuff. But I, th I think they have a there's a lot of good choices for Reed Richards. And the main point that I could drive home is that there are so many better choices out there than John Krasinski, as far as I can tell. And again, I love Krasinski, but it's like, yeah, it it's been beaten over the head on all of us. And it's just right. like, Okay, we get it. You're crazy for Krasinski. You know, you have to have that crazy capitalized with a K. Yeah. So, yeah, it's but it's just not the most. <laughs> it's just not the most imaginative choice. And I tend to like. I, I do feel like with Krasinski, I can already kind of see what he would do, and it's not bad. But I also like when somebody is cast and you don't really see exactly what they're going to do and how it's going to translate, but then they just blow your mind with something really special and unexpected that is still true to. You know, your understanding of the character if you know them from the source material. So I don't hate that choice. It's just nowhere near it's my tiring. list of favorites. For me, it's tiring. And yeah. I feel if we get somebody... I also I love the idea of unknowns. I think unknowns mm -hmm. work so damn well because that's the star-making role. And, you know, that's why... When I hear over at the Distinguished Competition that we're getting an Arpats Batman movie, I love that idea because it is the most unconventional choice. When you think right. of Robert Pattinson, I don't think of Batman, and I hate being one of those people, but yes, I do think of Twilight. But then you also hear you know, him in movies such as The Lighthouse and doing career-defining roles such as that. I like that idea of somebody that you wouldn't expect you know what let's give it a shot why not and mm -hmm. like we had that also with a certain mr heath ledger back in right. 2008 with the career defining role of the joker i love when it's things yeah, we don't I remember I, I not to be a hipster about it and say i liked it before it was cool but i was excited about the heath ledger casting choice when we found out about it back in the summer of 2006 and the reason I was excited was similar to what generally excites me about casting choices. They don't necessarily have to be unknown, but I like it when they're unexpected. And I think that with Heath Ledger, I didn't know how he would play the Joker because there was nothing in his background, in his career up until that point, that would tell you that this guy should play the Joker. The only thing I knew about him is that going from 10 Things I Hate About You to A Knight's Tale to the more you know awards bait type of movies like Monsters Ball and Brokeback Mountain, 
he was really, really good in all of that. So I just knew he had this range where he seemed to be the type of actor who could do anything and do it really, really well. So whatever they're going to do, whatever they're going to attempt with the Joker, it should be special because his performances generally are, especially with where he was on his more recent career trajectory up until that point, as I mentioned with Monsters Ball and Brokeback Mountain, that there was just it was highly likely that he would deliver something special. And of course, he did. And in regards to range, going back to the episode of WandaVision, with Paul Bettany, his performance, it got me thinking, this might be a career-defining role for him because it's showing what kind of range he has, both being a serious mm. actor and a comedic actor. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, 2022, the Emmys come along. Mm. Could you see Bettany getting a nod for Best Comedic Performance? Because I thought he, he's been knocking it out of the park week in and week out with that. He really has. And I'm very interested in how they would classify WandaVision for the Emmys. Because is it a comedy series? Is it a drama? Or is it a limited series? Which means it's regardless of its tone, we don't know yet that there are going to be multiple seasons of this. And so if it plays as a, minute, as a limited series instead of an ongoing, then he goes into a different category. I can definitely see Paul Bettany being nominated in whatever category they're in. Paul Bettany's performance has been so outstanding that I could see him being nominated regardless of how the show is classified in whatever best actor category the Television Academy deems he belongs in. I could see him being nominated. And Elizabeth Olsen, not only do I see her being nominated, I, I just see her flat out winning. I don't know what the rest of the year holds as far as performances go, but... This series almost feels inherently it's supposed to be tonally imbalanced, and yet it's not because the person holding it all together for me is, I mean, Paul Bettany's doing a lot of heavy lift, heavy lifting there, but at the center of it is Elizabeth Olsen. And this episode, it looks, I know it's not, but it looks effortless. The way she's transitioning from the, the tension with her husband to just the joy of her kids and it being their first Halloween to the suspicion and doubt with Pietro, to resigning herself to her own sadness and acknowledging her own sadness and feelings of grief toward the end of the episode. She's just doing everything you could possibly ask an actor to do or go through or experience in this episode and throughout this series. And she is outstanding at every single turn. As far as as, as acting clinics go, this might be, this, they're really putting one on. And this is as strong of performances Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany that we've been treated to in the MCU, whether it's on the big screen or on Disney+. Plus. Absolutely. And I have to ask, because a lot of people have been talking about this in the last few weeks, do you think a second season of this series could be possible? Myself, I don't think so. I think it's going to just be a one-and-done event series, not, you know, a continuation like a la, you know, The Mandalorian. I think it's just going to be one-and-done, then we go to the next thing, then to the next thing, then to the next thing. This feels more like a one-and-done to me. That's not to say you can't do another Disney Plus series where Wanda and or Vision are at the center of it. You could absolutely do that. Would it be WandaVision? I guess you could, if Disney wants to, for the sake of branding, which they're good at, they could keep the title, but I, I just, I don't know. I, I think it would be the same series only in name, only in name and only in the characters involved, but they're not going to go back to, the, the reason this is WandaVision is because she's constructing this thing, this sitcom reality of Westview. They're not going to go back to that. So it would be a more, 
straightforward outside of this, you know, reality she's created, it's not going to be that anymore. So you could call it the same thing. You could involve the same characters, but it really wouldn't truly be, I don't think anyway, a season two of this show. It would be something else. Now, one of the things with this episode that was incredibly heartbreaking was seeing Vision getting out of Westview. Mm. And my interpretation of what was going on in that moment was he managed to get out, but all of his parts proceed to just get pulled back in. My interpretation is in the regular world, he's dead and his existence as a living quote unquote being, at least as a a synthesoid, is in Westview and nowhere else. And they're pulling him back in because that's the only place he can be alive. Once he comes back into the regular world, he's dead. He does not exist. And there's no way, quote unquote, to bring him back. The warranty is already expired. Tony's gone. There's no warranty available. I'm not so sure what's going on with Vision because he is going, he breaks through the barrier or he tries to, but he is never really like out of the barrier. It still seems to be holding on to him and it's dragging him in piece by piece, which makes me wonder, is is this because Vision would be dead here or is this just the barrier being constructed to keep Wanda in because, or keep Vision in there because Wanda wants him? So would he have been... If all the pieces were pulled back into Westview, would he be reassembled magically and then he's back to being alive? Um, or is it, yeah, is he really just dying and, and would be a dead husk again if Wanda had, I mean, Wanda certainly thinks he needs to be saved. That's why she expands the hex to, and he's immediately healed once the barrier goes back over him again. So I, I get the idea that Vision is dead, but I don't think that's the whole story because I think that what Sword has been doing, I know Hayward said, that Wanda, like out of her grief, she disrespected Vision's wishes and resurrected him. I don't think that's what happened. I think Sword already had or was trying to resurrect Vision. I think that I think they were doing they were trying to turn him into what their name says, sentient. I know it's not the comic version, but in the MCU, sentient weapon observation response to Vision. Vision was supposed to be their sentient weapon. She found out about it. She went, she stopped it, and now she's created this thing to try and protect herself and him. And I think there's plenty of things backing that up. Like in this episode, when they realize that Hayward, I mean, of course, Hayward hid the security footage for nine days, and Hayward also didn't let anybody know that he could actually see, had his little satellite graphic view of Westview, didn't tell anybody about that, didn't reveal Monica's blood work. They had to hack the system to find out about all of that. But when when it's on that screen, as they're looking at as Wu and Monica and Darcy are all watching, uh, as they're all watching what's happening in Westview and they're watching Vision, the fact that Hayward is even tracking Vision at all, I think is a giveaway. But then also like on the screen, when it zooms back in on Vision, it says reacquiring asset, meaning Vision is an asset and therefore a sentient weapon. So when Wanda says that, you know, Vision doesn't want to know what's outside of Westview, Death is one possibility, but so is the thing that Vision wanted even less than death, which is to become a living weapon. So if that's Vision's fate, if he's outside of Westview and Sword gets their hands on him again, you know, then that would be the worst possible scenario. And so I, I really do think that even if Vision were to be dead, if he left Westview, there's enough of him left that Sword could resurrect him and turn him into a living weapon. And that's what Wanda is worrying about and one of the things she's trying to prevent. 
And, you know, it got me thinking about the series as a whole. And obviously the main reason why it's being done is because, well, plot device. But I'm curious as to why the series is what it is with her doing these moments, these, you know, taking the town over and making it into a television series. Why Mm -hmm. is she doing that? Why did she pick the idea of sitcoms of varying decades? Like, that's something that I'm curious to see what that really means. Like, what was she thinking of making everything into that? And I feel like that's a question nobody has actually asked, you know? Um, it's not a question nobody's asked. I've definitely talked about it on my show. Um, <laughs> and then you're not obligated to have heard it. Um, but no, my theory on this, even since like this is over a year ago, and, and when we found out that the show was going to be sitcoms slash reality, I was like, well, why? Why? Why would the sitcoms even be there in the first place? Like, how does that actually make sense? And it's not just about physically how is Wanda doing it. We know about the relic radiation and, and all of that. But besides the Marvel science, the the real question is, why is it that? And I think that this episode actually makes me feel even more strongly about it is Zemo describes in Captain America Civil War that that Sokovia was a failed state long before the Avengers and Ultron showed up in Age of Ultron, meaning this was not a safe place to grow up. This was not a safe place to live. And this episode teases that in the flashback that isn't quite what Wanda remembers. It's still one part of it that I believe is accurate is look at what's going on behind these kids who are trick-or-treating and getting a dead fish. As you see people like stealing wheels off of a car, but you also hear machine gun fire in the background. And this points to Sokovia being a very dangerous place. And I think that for Wanda and her brother, but especially Wanda, what probably was safe, like this whole thing is a safety net. That's why Wanda's doing this. It's suppressed trauma, live the ideal life, Live a, live a life that feels normal and safe. Well, the only thing that resembled what Wanda hoped was normal and safe, and the only time she even felt a little bit of safety, was probably the escape of television and sitcoms. So outside their apartment or wherever they lived, it was chaos, it was machine gun fire, it was danger. Inside the apartment, sitting in front of the TV, watching reruns of American sitcom, of American sitcoms, that was as safe as it got for Wanda. So that's what she's escaped into. She's escaped into her childhood idea of what safety in her childhood ideal ideal vision, no pun intended, of what safety would be. And that's why this is sitcoms. This is part of this is how Wanda has chosen to shield herself from her emotional trauma. And you can tell she really didn't get the subtext of everything going on in the world because an idea of safety, New Jersey. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> but In regards to that, we also, uh, on an earlier episode, we theorized that the name of the town, being Westview, being in Sokovia, Mm. this is her view of the West, the ideal Mm. byproduct of, you know, the world. Like, oh, look at this. This is my view of the West. Everything's hunky-dory, peachy keen apple pie. You know, Americana. And especially, by the way, when the hex moves and we see, you know, these soldiers getting, you know— turned into clowns by the way that's my theory of she sees them as just clowns they're the circus coming to town and they're not going to do anything they're going to be gone within a couple of days anyway so what does it matter but Mm. when we see the car dealership the modern day car dealership get turned into 
an old relic of what a car dealership was. Even in the 90s and early, you know, aughts, I'm sorry, car dealerships did not look like that. And it just, that first off took me back a little bit. Like, why does that look like, like that looks like something Kermit the Frog would have uh, rode by on his bicycle in the first Muppet movie. (laughs) So just seeing that, I'm like, okay. But I loved that scene of her extending the hex and we see almost every person turned into their sitcom counterpart, except for one mm-hmm. person. By the way, did they take uh, what's uh, Monica and Jimmy as well as Tyler and get them into the hex? No. So Monica escaped, right? and Jimmy are so far down the road. That, I mean, they notice it moving, but they're way out in front of it. And I think Jimmy says step on it or something like that. And Hayward gets away as well. Hayward and two other people in the vehicle that's why he's like, does anybody read me? Um, nobody reads him because everybody else got swallowed up by the hex. But Hayward and, and two of his other sword agents, they're okay. They're out of it. And Jimmy Woo and Monica Rambo are out of it as well. And the only one of that team that was sucked up into it was Darcy. And what I yes. loved was they immediately turned to another angle of another shot of another character we don't see what Darcy's sitcom counterpart is. And I absolutely right. love that they did that because now next week, that is going to be our big surprise. And it's rather apropos because in, I want to say it was episode four, when we see her make her return, we see her watching the show and she's actually a fan of it. She's really enjoying it and getting into it. So right. for her, she's a part of something she actually really enjoys and I don't know at what cost that's going to be for her, you know? Yeah, I know the popular theory going on right now is that she'll be a waitress like Kat Dennings was in Two Broke Girls, which would be fine. Um, I think that's totally okay. The only thing I would go ahead and debunk is I see a lot of theories out there now of Darcy's going to have powers. I'm like, well, if Darcy's going to have powers, then so's every sword agent who just got swallowed up by the hex. I don't think that's true. And I think they actually establish an important rule in this episode when they talk about Monica and her condition is that they say she's been through it twice and presumably she's going to go back through it a third time. So it's about going through the barrier multiple times in order for somebody to possibly be a candidate to get superpowers. So anybody who just goes through once, uh, I don't think is going to be as lucky as as Monica seems like she's going to be in terms of getting superpowers, superpowers. There's many other things about Monica that are not lucky right now. Um, But yeah, Monica's getting superpowers out of this, I think, but I don't know that anybody else is. Now, before we put a bow on this episode, you mentioned that with the Hex and people entering the barrier multiple times. Do you think this could lead to the introduction of the M word in the Marvel Universe? And of course, I'm referring to mutations, mutants. It certainly could. And I almost wonder if this is going to be Marvel's way of consolidating the idea of mutants and inhumans in the MCU, because I I don't think they're going to do both. Um, Or inhumans would be something very different. It wouldn't be like they tried to do in comics when they tried to use several years ago inhumans to kind of replace mutants because mutants were still controlled by Fox on the big screen. I don't know that it's going to, I don't know that they would ever do that. Like they tried to do in Marvel television with agents of shield. There might be an, a real inhuman Royal family, not the one on that TV show that shall not be mentioned. Although I just did. (laughs) Um, a proper what show? MCU proper like inhuman royal family, but I feel like that would be more Cree based than you know based on Earth and having inhumans all over the place. So on Earth, yeah, I could see this certainly 
I mean, it's it's talking about how it's rewriting her cells on a molecular level. So the way Monica sees that right now, she actually sees it as cancer. That's why she describes cells metastasizing and cells in remission. She's seeing the blood work that she saw with her mom who died of cancer, which I think speaks to the heroism of Monica Rambo. She's seeing, she's staring the same fate that took her mother right in the face. And she's just saying, I know how Wanda's feeling and I won't stop until I help her. Love that for Monica Rambo in this episode. But it, in our comic booky minds, knowing other things are, are going on, and this is a character who is a, a bona fide superhero in the comic books, I think she's getting her powers. Whether or not that means that this is mutation, uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously it's possible. I just don't feel as strongly about that as everyone else does. The only thing I'm, I am curious about, though, is if the hex keeps expanding, it doesn't have to go that far to reach Jersey City um, with Kamala Ooh. Khan, who has her own series coming out this year. Not my theory. Somebody on my Patreon named Alex uh, came up with that, and I just loved it. But um, I do, too. Credit where credit's due. But, I, but also, that. But by the logic of this show, in order for that to be true, Kamala Khan would have to not just be swallowed up by the Hex. She would have to go like in, out, and then back in again through the barrier, not just having Westview like dropped as it as it might be you know if wanda decides to give this up or whatever whatever's really behind this if it's not wanda gives this up so um i could see monica getting powers out of this kamala khan maybe as well but going full on to launch mutants i understand the potential i see it being there and it wouldn't shock me if it happens but it also wouldn't shock me if it doesn't happen and this is a, a little bit more a little bit smaller and more self-contained than you know our, our theorizing has suggested to us now, in your opinion, do you feel fans should brace themselves for the prospect, potential prospect of mutants or Reed Richards, or should they be like, well, you know what? A little disappointment doesn't hurt from time to time. I feel like the most important thing, fan well, not the most important thing, but one thing fans can do to spare themselves a potential disappointment is just keep an open mind about what this may be, because... It's our tendency as fans to just think about the biggest possible thing all the time and what we feel is the most exciting. It's a very natural thing to do, but it's also about the story unfolding in a way that makes sense, is complete, and is fulfilling. And that's not always about doing the biggest possible thing or bringing in the biggest possible character or set of characters or, or whatever. There's no, the show has not made, in the story that's been told so far, there's no promises that have been made as far as we're going to get mutants, we're going to get Reed Richards, we're going to get these things. So it's okay to hope for those things and be excited about those possibilities. But at the same time, it's important to not count on them or expect that now it's, it's on the show to deliver those things to us. The show is not responsible for all of our speculation and all of our expectations, unless it's making any sort of direct promises, which it really hasn't been at all. So... I think, and this is why I love WandaVision so much, is yes, there's exciting possibilities that are still out there. There's a mystery that needs to be unraveled. There are questions to answer, and I'm excited about getting all of those answers. But I've been enjoying the journey with this regardless, independent of whatever these answers ultimately are, because I think they've told a story that is emotionally fulfilling, that really resonates with what Wanda is going through, what Vision is going through, Monica is going through, and I'll take all the Jimmy Woo that I can get because Randall Park is just so wonderful in this role as like the nicest guy in the world. Even his insults are nice when he's talking about, you know, you don't need to diminish your colleagues while we're waging a war you can't win. Um, I just, everything about this show I adore. And 
I'm also very happy that I'm enjoying so much of the show without necessarily having all the answers because it means even when I get the answers, it will still be a satisfying show to go back and watch again. If all this show is, is it's mystery, then we're never going to want to watch it again and we're never going to care anymore after we get the answers because the riddle's been solved and then we move on with our lives. But I think this is a show that once we have all the answers, it's only going to enrich the experience that much more in all of these other moments that are already so great, that have been so great through these first six episodes and hopefully will continue to be through the remaining three episodes. Um, they'll just continue to get better and better. Uh, they're already great, already fulfilling, and these last, three, these last three episodes and the answers that we'll get will hopefully enrich that experience, whether that means Reed Richards and Mutants or not. I have to say, by the way, on the subject of Jimmy Woo, my favorite moment in the whole episode was when uh, Tyler you know, is talking and says, who is the sassy best friend? And mm-hmm. immediately Jimmy Woo proceeds to say something sassy. I'm like, well, that's the answer right there. There you go. And also, just one more final little thing, because I keep remembering little things that are happening in this episode. I love the acknowledgement of the 2010 motion picture and 2007 comic book Kick-Ass involving Evan Peters and actor whose name I don't remember at this time. John Filmian. Him, yes. (laughs) And I love that. I thought it was one of the funniest parts of the episode. And you just hear go, Kick-Ass? So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is Kick-Ass a motion picture in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I don't know. I I feel like that one is working on two different levels. This is a meta show by nature. It's a television show that is also about the artifice of television in many ways. So, um, And just fiction, filmed entertainment in general. And so I, I think it's, there is the level that, those of us who are a little bit nerdier about it, where we're enjoying it, because yes, it's very obviously, and I think very intentionally, a reference to Kick-Ass. I don't think that's Wanda recognizing that, hey, I've seen this guy in the movie Kick-Ass, because if she saw him in the movie Kick-Ass, she saw her real brother in the movie Kick-Ass. So that is I, think true. It's just a, it, I think it's just a meta thing for us to enjoy of, hey, remember back before anybody knew who Evan Peters or Aaron Taylor Johnson were, that they were in this superhero movie together? I think that's I think it's just for us It's like these two guys who have both played Pietro now in this universe or one of them is at least maybe pretending only pretending to be Pietro in this universe. They were also in this other movie together. Isn't that fun? But then it also serves the function. And I also don't think, by the way, that they're trying to merge the kick ass universe with the MCU. How so great I, I think would that it's be, just though? that meta <laughs> thing. But if you don't know that it's still enjoyable, it still works because. It's a surprising thing for a lot of parents when they hear their kid, their young kids swear in front of them for the very first time. So that's Wanda being a mom and lingering on the fact that her young son, Tommy, just said kick ass in front of her. Um, and so it's, yeah, kids are growing up, whatever. But it, and, and also, you know, the bad influence of Pietro on Tommy, which she is, uh, which she acknowledges in this episode. So I think it's mainly on those two levels that it's working. And, you know, real quick with the Marvel Universe acknowledging pop culture in our world, I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, because pop culture aficionado Peter Parker has mentioned it numerous times, that really old movie Star Wars. And I'm wondering, do the prequels exist in that universe? Because I would hate to be Thor watching uh, the prequel trilogy. Well, not just because he's watching the prequels, but because (laughs) he's, you know, seeing a certain... uh, certain member of royalty 
in the Star Wars prequel movies, right. and she looks really familiar, and so does that guy that's on the Jedi Council, and I'm not talking about Anakin because he never did make it to the Jedi Council. But right. <laughs> it's very, again, I love... that In it, those we, instances, it, I assume those characters were played by other actors or actors who have the same name but don't look the way they do in our world. Jamua L. Saxon, yes. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> And before we wrap this episode up, let's throw it on back down to John Sherburn to talk about episode number six of WandaVision. Hi, everybody. Great episode, as always. And I don't really have much to add to this one. You guys really discussed a majority of what the episode uh, brought, what we think might be coming. But there are just a few things that I will point out before I turn it back to you to walk us out. So... Um, I guess what I'll say first is something that came to my head more than ever before in this episode was the uh, concepts of the free will of the people in Westview. Uh, there's a scene where a woman is uh, trying to hang clothes on a line and has a single tear running down her face as her kids like run away from her house. And uh, Vision says, as those are your kids, and all she can do is kind of look at him with that tear falling from her eye. And, oh, it hit me so hard. I, people are talking a lot about the, the commercial being freaky, but that part freaked me out a lot because it's one of those, they're all very conscious of what's going on. They just don't have the power to stop it. And in the center, these people are living well um, because they, you know, maybe they're they're eating food, going to sleep, having a full life perhaps because they're friends of Wanda. But for people at the edge of town, right, that don't get any action, they're just doing the same individual task all day, every day, Whatever she's assigned to them. I'm sure Wanda's not sitting there telling everyone to eat and to sleep and to go to the bathroom. And so a lot of these people are just stuck in a task or two and have no free will. For example, this woman who, who can't do anything for her kids, her job is to go take the laundry outside and hang it on the line. I think it's the freakiest thing. It really, really threw me, and I think it's one of the more creepy aspects of the show as a whole. Um, I'll also say I, I, I am... You know, there's the Mephisto train, and um, in this episode, there was really interesting imagery. Obviously, everyone is dressed up in their old school costumes. You also had Agnes dressed up as a witch, which, uh, at the, it's interesting to me. It's a good chance that she's going to be Agatha Harkness, but it also could just be some fan service or, like, them throwing a red herring our way. And uh, to the same note, there's a lot of red monster red demon imagery in this episode like there's a shot where it cuts to literally a big head that's red with flames on any side of its body um and there's a shot with one of the inflatable men like at the car dealerships and so there's a lot of like big red towering imposing inflatable figures are there which at the very least again is a red herring but i'm i don't know it feels like it's another sign towards something like a Mephisto or another demon of the same nature. And so I have not abandoned that train. I know it's overhyped, but I, I, I think there are some reasons to look at it as a potential for what the plot of the show is going to end up being. Um, I'm excited to see where we go from here. Uh, there's some rumor that the next few episodes are going to be an hour long each. We'll see if they actually are. I'm curious to see if they're going to be an hour long each. And if they are, I think we're going to see a lot of stuff unfold. If not, um, I, we're still, we got, we got so much going on, and we only have three more episodes. I'm very excited to see where they end all of this. Um, 
I'm curious what happened to Dottie, I think her name is. She was in one episode and kind of dropped off the face of the earth. So I'm curious if she comes back and has more character development. And I, I think she will, is my two cents personally. Um, so yeah, there's uh, otherwise, I, again, I think that that you guys did a great job of really unpacking the rest of the episode. But I'm very excited to see where they take things from here. I think it's definitely just getting creepier and creepier. And I think everyone's curious to see where they go with the show's direction from here. Um, I don't have too many opinions on some of the fan casting stuff. I'm kind of waiting to see what they do because you don't really know, right? You don't know who's going to play well, who they're slated to play. And I'm just more curious than anything where they're coming. I think we're going to see some heroes or a hero, Dr. Strange, maybe come in at the very end of the show. Uh, I don't expect to see anyone before that because, again, they weren't sure WandaVision was going to be a hit before it came out. I can't see them wasting money on a huge build actor. So I think you're going to see someone new come in maybe at the end, but that might be just about it. I don't think you're going to see any other Avengers or anyone from the movies uh, maybe a brief cameo, but even then, you're paying a money to go into costume and to come on set, and so I don't think it's worth it in a TV show that might have been a flop. Um, so I'm excited to see where the directions take off from here, what ends up happening, and what um, this expanding town of Westview looks like. And with that, I will turn it back to you guys, Peter and Sean. So uh, thank you guys for listening to my two cents for just a second here, and, uh, well, enjoy the outro. Sean, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on today's program. Well, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure was all mine. I, I love talking about this stuff, clearly. So uh, I'll talk about it anytime. And by the way, you had mentioned you're a fan of the Fantastic Four, and this is our open invite. If you are interested, we'd love to have you be a third or fourth mic, whichever, if John's available that day, if you would like to partake in an episode of Fantastic Voyage on our Patreon. You'd be reading Fantastic Four number 10 or something, probably. So... Come on down, sure, yeah. come to the place where fun sure. never ends. But Sounds like fun. <laughs> Sean, how can people get a hold of you on social media? So the easiest place to find me is, because I'm not really, I don't use my personal social media as much anymore, but for my podcast, MCU Fan Show, it's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at MCU Fan Show. That's the best place to find what I'm up to. Now, wait a minute, you said the MCU Fan Show. How can people listen to that? You can search MCU Fan Show anywhere you look for podcasts, and you will be able to find and hopefully enjoy the show. You'll be able to listen to it. Enjoyment, the enjoyment part's up to you. See, now I'm going to steal that method of dis, uh, segueing into letting people know how to find the podcast, because I just go iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, yada, yada, yada. That just saved me all those syllables. So thank you. Yep. <laughs> Sean, once again, thank you. You're very welcome. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Sean Gerber. Excelsior. <laughs>